And please stand in honor of God's word as Dan Wanshura comes up to read Hebrews 9, 6 through 15. Good morning. Listen as I read. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as this first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so we're in a, in a series uh, called The Gospel Changes Everything, and uh, the first week of that series was, was last week. And man, you know, you might be familiar with the story uh, in the Old Testament where uh, David, who was uh, one of the kings of, of Israel, has a child who is in trouble, uh, physically speaking. And David won't uh, get dressed, and he won't eat food, and he won't come out of his room, <clears throat> and he's pretty, uh, pretty miserable, a pretty miserable guy, uh, longing for his child to be uh, rescued or whatever. And, uh, and then his child doesn't, and his child, uh, his child dies. And when his servants come to him and tell him that his child did not make it, uh, he gets up and cleans himself up and uh, comes down and eats, and he's like, uh, you know, servants don't know what to do about that, and the servants say, you know, you were so distraught before your child died, but now your child has died, and you've uh, kind of pulled yourself together. Like, what, what's, what's with that? And David just shows an incredible sense of uh, uh, character and confidence in, in the goodness of God, and just uh, basically says that I uh, have lost my child, but my child's not going to come to me, but I'm going to go uh, to him. And uh, just shows this deep character and trust in God. And uh, I'm, I'm sharing that in part because uh, the, last, <clears throat> uh, the last 10 days uh, of our family's life uh, has been, uh, in a small way, uh, in, a, in a similar category of uh, David. Uh, our, our, our dog, our family dog, uh, that we uh, had for 11 years, um, we found out last Friday, so like 10 days ago, that uh, we were going to have to put her down. And uh, the, the window of time from that Friday when we found it out until Thursday when we had to put her down, um, I kind of felt like that first category of David, where it was like, I didn't really want to go out of my room, and I was uh, pretty distracted last weekend. 
And uh, now I'm standing here today, and I really wish that I had David's character, and that I had just pulled myself up together, and uh, I was all, all my T's were dotted, and my eyes were cro- my T's were crossed, and my eyes were dotted. Um, but I'm I'm not like our, our family's had a really uh, really hard time. So Thursday Thursday night uh, we said goodbye to her, and uh, that yeah she was a pretty special part of our family. And uh, so I'm I'm hoping that I make sense. I guess is where I'm trying to get to, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that our our time together is an encouragement uh, to you. Uh, so this series, The Gospel Changes Everything, what we're going to do over these weeks is just grab uh, a few different uh, subjects, a few different areas of consideration. Uh, we're saying the gospel changes everything because we believe it changes everything. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to be able to discuss everything. And so we've just picked uh, a handful of, of subjects. And today's is the subject of guilt. What, what does the gospel have to say about guilt? Well, maybe we could start by defining it. What, what is guilt? Um, this is Wikipedia. I thought this was interesting. This is Wikipedia's uh, uh, attempt at a definition. Guilt is an emotional experience that occurs when a person believes or realizes, accurately or not, that they have comprised their own, or they have compromised their own standards of conduct or have violated universal moral standards and bear significant responsibility for that violation. Um, and so there's a, a, a number of things going on there, a number of uh, efforts to kind of uh, maybe uh, soften some of the definition or to uh, make it a little bit more relative. Uh, but there, you know, the recognition is that it's an emotional experience that occurs when something's been compromised. Um, and so and, you know, another way you could say this is guilt is what we feel when we do something wrong. And so, you know, a lot of questions bubble up with that. Is guilt good? Is guilt bad? Uh, Does guilt matter? Um, And so here we are gathered at a church on a Sunday, and so we're primarily going to wrestle with what does the Bible have to say uh, uh, about guilt. And what I want to invite you into this morning is uh, for you to see that the Bible addresses guilt from at least from, from two angles. Uh, a more subjective angle and a more objective angle. Uh, maybe you could say one is much more obvious and one is much more serious. So first, uh, our much more obvious problem. Our more obvious problem is that we feel guilty. Uh, if you look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 9, I want to start kind of at the end of this passage. In, in, in verse 14, Uh, The writer of Hebrews references this idea, and uh, towards the end of that verse, end of verse 14, it says that um, how much more will, at the beginning, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works? And so there's this recognition that the writer of Hebrews, you know, most people believe, uh, most Bible scholars believe that Hebrews is a sermon. It's one single sermon. And uh, there, there's a big idea to it, and then there's uh, multiple points. Um, and, and part of what he's, he's bringing to bear here is the idea that our conscience has a problem. And in verse 14, he says that our, our conscience needs purified. He actually says, needs purified from dead works. Now, now, the Greek words that are translated dead works, actually, uh, there's some flexibility to what that phrase means, dead works. Uh, it could mean sin. It could mean things that are contrary 
uh, like that, are, that are overtly wrong, things that are contrary to what God says we should do. That phrase could also mean religious works that are being done to try to, to, try to deal with, with your life, trying to earn God's approval or trying to, to pay back from the, the things that you have done. And th- those would be considered dead works as well. But, but either way, the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is we have a problem with our consciences. So much so that we need our, conscience, our consciences to be purified. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying our consciences are scarred. They're, they're dirty. They're in need of purification. They need washed. They need cleansed. We feel that. We feel that sense of uh, something on the inside that is just not right. And you might say, well, where does the guilt come from? Well, interestingly, this, this week I was, I was reading a little bit about uh, Freud and Freud's view on, on guilt. And, and some of uh, his solutions or some of his action steps might not be as helpful, but his observations are, uh, are, they are helpful. Uh, he, he said that, that humans often experience a general malaise uh, about life or a general discomfort with life. He, he identified thoughts uh, similar to this, that we have a sense in us that just says things aren't right or that I, I don't like the way things are in my life or why am I not different or why isn't my life better? And we, we may want to blame other people. We may want to blame our parents or blame our spouses or blame the government. Uh, but Freud says it's actually, it's in, it's, in a sense, it's like this covert guilt. That, that, that guilt is what is, is welling up in us, and it's telling us something is not right. He says humanity deals with pervasive guilt. And he actually says it's over our selfish behavior. We know it. We can feel it. We sense it. Something's not right inside. Something is wrong with us. Something is wrong with the world. And, he, and I love the idea of it being covert, that you might not necessarily experience those emotions and identify them immediately as guilt, but the, it's, it's more covert. It's, it's this sense of it, something is not right, and we are, our, uh, our emotions are saying something's not right with me. Can you relate to that? Do you, do you feel guilty? What do you feel guilty about? What does the voice in your head say? Uh, One author just uh, explored some options, and he was coming at this probably more from a Christian's perspective, but things that Christians often get guilty about. Uh, Things like, I could pray more. I'm not bold enough in my evangelism. I like sports too much. I watch movies and TV too much. My quiet times with God are too short. I don't give enough. I don't speak out regarding abortion or racism or poverty or QAnon or global warming or Christian nationalism or sexual orientation or you fill in the blank. I don't speak out about that enough. Uh, Christians get guilty about I, I, I bought a new couch or a new car or a new outfit that I didn't really need to buy. I don't spend enough time with my spouse or with my kids or with my friends. I eat too much junk food. I don't recycle enough. I don't save enough of my money. I need to lose 20 pounds. I could use my time better. 
I could live in a place that requires more of me, that's harder, or I could live in a house that's smaller. Sometimes it's more in the category of guilt over, uh, in the category of regret, where you think if, if I would have done this thing, then maybe this bad thing wouldn't have happened. Or if I would have not done this thing, then maybe this bad thing wouldn't have happened. It's almost this low-grade sense of, of guilt that, that we live with. And then there are those rare times, maybe, where you're not guilting yourself, and someone else is more than glad to help you uh, with, with your guilt. Um, consider this uh, always insightful, uh, the, the ideas here from uh, Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know how well you can see this, but Calvin comes running in. Mom, mom, a big dog knocked me down, and he stole Hobbes. I tried to catch him, but I couldn't. And now I've lost my best friend. Here's mom's feedback. Well, Calvin, if you wouldn't drag the tiger everywhere, things like this wouldn't happen. And then Calvin says, there's no problem so awful that you can't, that you can't add some guilt to it and make it even worse. <laughs> and that's a little bit of our story of the world. It's like that idea of kind of just pervasive guilt. It just seems to hang around. Uh, one author put it this way, we have, you know, whether it's from ourselves or from others, we have an, an, an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. And we know that we don't. And so there's this unease, this sense that something is not right. We feel it. That's the more obvious problem. Might be less obvious, but we have a problem that's more serious. Um... So our more obvious problem is feeling guilt. Our more serious problem is really more from God's perspective, or at least what God invites us to see. And that is not that we feel guilt, not just that we feel guilt, but that we are guilty. And the Bible, in various ways and so many different times, reveals this reality that all have sinned. That, that all have violated our creator's design for how we were supposed to live in the world. And so the Bible is actually pulling the curtain back and saying, at least at some level, the feeling of guilt that you have, that, that, that sense of guilt that you have, is actually there is a real reason why guilt is present. So we don't just have subjective guilt, we have objective guilt. Sin in your life doesn't just mean that you feel it. It actually means that you are guilty. It actually means that you and I are unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. I want you to look at these verses in Hebrews chapter 9. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is a beautiful book. It's a very complicated book. And a lot of Bible scholars would say that chapter 9 is like one of the hardest parts of Hebrews to understand. And so if as those verses were read, they seemed a little hard to grasp, like you're in good company. They are hard verses to grasp. But if you look at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 9, what is all of that talking about? What is that about? It is, in general, it is pointing to all the ceremonies and all the sacrifices of Old Testament worship. Uh, maybe you've heard this before, but if you want to understand Hebrews, it would be great to read the book of Leviticus first, because the book of Leviticus lays out all of the standards for worship for the nation of Israel. 
And, and the book of Hebrews then comes back to those standards from a New Testament perspective, from a post-Christ uh, perspective, and bring and bear, you know, it shines light on what these Old Testament ceremonies and these Old Testament sacrifices were doing. And so in chapter 9, verses 6 through 10, it's pointing in general to these ceremonies, to these sacrifices, to, to all of this stuff that went on in the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, all of these things. But you know, something that is so strange about Old Testament worship, when, when, especially if it's your first time getting exposed to uh, the nature of it, that, 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 you know, the tabernacle worship, like, just the nature of the worship, is that there were all of these rules, just an incredible number of rules. And so many of these rules were related to this idea that you, you know, like they were telling you when you could go to worship and when you couldn't. And a lot of these rules were saying you can't go to worship if there's, you know, they're almost all physical. And there's all of these standards saying if this is true of you, you, you cannot go in. You cannot go worship. And so here's just a small sampling. You, you cannot go into worship if you've touched anything dead. You, you can do it later on, but you had to be cleansed and, and purified before you could go worship God. You could not go worship God if you had any infectious skin diseases like boils or sores or rashes. You could not go into worship God if you had had contact with mildew. So if you'd cleaned your shower that day, like you couldn't go in for worship, whether it was in your home or on your clothes. You couldn't go into worship if you had any kind of bodily discharge or diarrhea or anything like that. And the list goes on and on. But what is that all about? It's all about this idea of cleanliness, of ceremonial cleanliness. It was a symbol. It was a symbol, but a symbol of what? Well, let me ask you this. Why do you care about showering and about brushing your teeth and mouthwash and deodorant? Why have you gone up to people and breathed on them and said, is my breath okay? Like, what, what, why, why do we do things like that? We do it because we know what it's like to be around someone that smells terrible. We, we know what that is like. You, you, you say, what, you know, what, what's the problem? It's like dirt and stench and bad breath and body odor and feces, infections. Th those things are like we experience those things as, as disgusting, as unclean. If you were talking with somebody who had body odor, you, you might want to have an incredible amount of grace towards them. But your experience of that is distance. You, 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 you want to step away from that. You, you might try to smile. You might try to, try to be patient. But you, you, you recognize that and you viscerally, you want to move away from that. And you often try to do it as quickly as you can. Now think about the symbolism here. The Bible is revealing, the Old Testament law is revealing that sin is spiritual uncleanliness. And so all of these material laws, all of these physical laws that say you've got to be clean to come worship God, it's a symbol saying that this physical stuff, it's a way to, to try to translate that when you commit sin against the God of heaven, that's equivalent, that, that, that material dirtiness or that physical uncleanliness, sin is spiritual uncleanliness. When, when we're sinning, when we are sinful, when we're self-centered, how does God see that? 
he's repulsed by that. Just like you are repulsed by physical uncleanliness. Our spiritual uncleanliness is as disgusting to God as physical uncleanliness is to us. That means that we don't just have one problem. We have two problems. It means that we are unfit to be in the presence of the Holy God. We don't just feel guilty. We actually are guilty. We don't just have a subjective problem. We have an objective problem. We aren't fit to worship because we are guilty. All of that imagery of the material laws are pointing to a spiritual problem that stands between humans and the God of heaven. Well, what are we supposed to do about that? We feel guilty. Now we're finding out that we actually are guilty. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, there's been a number of efforts, actually. I mean, our, our, our current world, and actually it's not just current, our, our world has persistently tried to get rid of guilt, tried all kinds of things. Um, David Brooks, uh, just this week I, I found an article from him uh, in, in, in the New York Times, and it's titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in that book, he's interacting with a few other sources Uh, But what David uh, Brooks is processing is that if you go back, he he references a book that was a a, a pretty pretty popular book called After Virtue. It was written back in the early 80s. And and part of the the, the premise of that book or the idea of that book was that our society was trying to, to move past any sort of religious standards or religious expectations and that our culture was, was trying to find this, uh, this space, which, you know, generally speaking, is just considered secular, where we've kind of uh, pulled out any of these religious standards, this, this sense of like, you know, there's a deity that you're supposed to obey, that there's these universal truths that are supposed to hold. And it's like this effort in our society to, to, to pull that out. And the, the general idea uh, of the culture at that time was... That in doing all of this, you know, that secularism was going to replace religion, and that was going to lead to a nice, chilled-out society. David Brooks actually says, like, a uh, kind of a Snoop Dogg version of things, where it's like, you do you, I do me, and we'll all be cool with that. that like, this is the early 80s. That, 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 that was the general sense of things is that this is where it's going to lead. We're going to get this deity out of here. We're going to get religious expectations out of here. We're going to get secularism in in charge, large and in charge. And the result will be, you do you, I do me, and we'll all be cool with that. Well, here we are in the year 2021. How is that working? Do you you feel like that's working out? You feel like you're free to do you? You feel like our society has just found this utopian space of no judgment, of you're not guilty, do whatever you want. You won't, you won't, no one will think you're guilty. No one will, no one will accuse you. No way. It's, it's, got, it's, it's, it's crazier. Look at, look at the nature of, of things on, on college campuses and the effort to try to figure out what, what words are permitted to be said and not permitted to be said. Look, look at the alt-right and Christian nationalism. Look at the anger that is billowing up in our society. Look at the boycotts. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a real conservative part of Christianity. Uh, Christianity was pretty uh, culturally dominant, and uh, Christianity boycotted Disney. Uh, Christianity boycotted Kmart. 
Uh, Christianity did all, all, like evangelical Christianity did all kinds of boycotts. Well, today, it's, we're not boycott free. Evangelicalism doesn't have the same kind of cultural power, but there's, there's other kinds of boycotts. We see whole states getting boycotted over differences of opinion. We see websites and news channels. We, we see all kinds of efforts to tell people that they're wrong and they need to get in line. And part of what David Brooks is, is, is engaging with is the fact that we have all of this sense of wrong, all of this burdening guilt, but we have no way of aligning ourselves with what is right. Some people try to ignore their guilt. They, they try to say, you know, who, who, is, you know, who can hold me guilty? I, I, might, like, I might feel guilt, but I'm going to stuff that guilt because nobody tells me how to live my life. Like I tell myself how to live my life. That would kind of be the, the prideful re- response to, to guilt. Uh, other people uh, deal, deal with guilt, and they, they fall apart, and, and shame enters in, and they think, I, I will never deserve forgiveness. Who would ever forgive me? Why would they ever forgive me? I'm, I'm too dirty to get out of this. So, so pride, pride can come in and give you a, a course that says, ignore your guilt. Shame can come in and just drown you in your guilt and say, there, there actually is no road out of here. I might as well give up. But instead of ignoring your guilt or running from your guilt or drowning in your guilt, God actually offers incredible resources for processing your guilt. Verses 6 through 10, they're referring to the Old Testament ceremonies, the Old Testament sacrifices, but Hebrews is actually getting a lot more specific than just the general. In verses 6 through 10, it's hinted at, and then in verses 12 and 13, it's referenced again. But you see the phrase where the writer talks about goats and calves in verses 12 and 11? Do you see back in that earlier section, in verses 6 and 7, it, it's, it talks about the priest going into the, to the one space, but then once a year going into the second space? See, that's not talking about just the general sacrifices. That's not talking about just the general ceremonies. The, the writer of Hebrews is, 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 in addition, pointing to a very specific one. And what he's pointing to is something that you might know. It's, it's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You can read about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and all the stuff that was supposed to happen around this Jewish, um, this Jewish uh, observance. And so on this Day of Atonement, it happened once a year, every single year, and it was all about cleanliness, all about cleanliness, like cleanliness to the nth degree. In Leviticus, you can, you can read more about this when, when, when you have some time, but, but here's the gist of it. The high priest was the only one who could stand before God, who could go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement once a year. And he did it with the blood sacrifices, uh, with blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. And in order to be ready for Yom Kippur, one week before Yom Kippur, the high priest was put into seclusion. And he was put into seclusion so that he didn't accidentally touch anybody who had done something wrong. He didn't accidentally contaminate himself. So for one whole week, he's he's in seclusion. For that entire week, he fasts and prays to to purify his heart. The the night before Yom Kippur, he stayed up all night to pray, and the people are praying for him. And then on that last day, he washes three times, 
And they dress him over and over again in clean white linen. It's beautiful garments. They're very expensive garments. And they are completely clean. They, they go to painstaking lengths to keep these garments perfectly clean. Then finally he walks in to that special part of the temple that only the high priest goes into one time a year. And he goes in there with all the prayers of the people, cleansed over and over again, having prayed all night, having been in seclusion for a week, beautifully dressed. And he goes into this special part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and he makes atonement for the sins of the people. He goes through this, this annual ritual to lay before God a, a longing for the cleansing of the people, a recognition that their sins are greater than they could number, even with all of their sacrifices and all of their ceremonies, all of that stuff. There's no way they could have named it all. So he goes in there to say, all of our sin, all of the sin, even the sins that we didn't name, all of it, we ask for your cleansing. We ask that you would atone. He went in there, and he was as clean as he could possibly be to atone for the sins of the people. But guess what? They, they knew it didn't really work. They, they, they knew they had to offer all of those other sacrifices starting the very next day. The, the priests had to keep slaughtering animals, had to keep offering sacrifices, 365 days later, they were going to observe Yom Kippur again. There was this sense in which they were doing something that was symbolic, but they knew it wasn't sufficient. They knew it wasn't getting the job done because they had to keep doing it. But it's even worse than that. The high priest wasn't even able to be as clean as he looked. There's this great text in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3 where the high priest, his, his name is Joshua, and the high priest has a vision. And he has a vision of going and standing before God. And some scholars believe that this is him on, on Yom Kippur. And he gets in there and he is standing before God. And guess what? All of those efforts to keep himself clean, he gets in there before God and he realizes he's a dirty mess. That he's filthy. And then Satan shows up, and Satan starts saying, Joshua doesn't belong in here. Look at how dirty he is. Look at how dirty his clothes are. He doesn't belong in your presence. And guess what? Satan is right. And Joshua knows that Satan's right. The, the accusations are true. He doesn't belong before God. He really is that dirty. And then God speaks. And you know what God says? God doesn't say, shut up, Satan. He is clean. No, he says, okay, that's a problem. So let's do this. Take off his dirty clothes. And I'm going to give you clean clothes. Really clean clothes. Truly clean clothes. Take off that turban. I'm going to give you a clean turban. In other words, God looks at Joshua and, uh, yeah, Joshua and he says, you're right. You don't belong here. You're right. You are dirtier than you could ever imagine. But I actually have a solution for you. I can take your dirty clothes and I can give you new, clean clothes. This is the message of the gospel. Do we have any hope of being truly clean? Do we have any hope? 
Look, you can go through all of the rituals. You can live in seclusion. You can do all of the praying and fasting. You can do all of the deeds that you want to do. You can wash your clothes. You can try to keep your clothes clean. You can do all of those things. But when you stand before God, he sees through all of that. And when Joshua, the high priest, stands before God, he realizes that God's eyes just rip right through all of that ceremonial stuff. And it's not enough. He needs something more than all of these ceremonies. He needs someone who can actually cleanse him, who can actually really wash him. Well, what's the answer? The answer is that in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 3, this high priest's name is Joshua. And the Hebrew word for that is the same word that we get, Jesus. And the answer is, is that years later, there's a better Joshua. There's a Jesus the savior of mankind who comes and he ends up being the once for all sacrifice. And as you read Hebrews chapter nine and you walk through verses 11, 12, and 13, this is what it says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, once for all. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you hear the good news? There isn't another Yom Kippur for Jesus. One time he entered with the eternal sacrifice and the eternal redemption. He has won for us. He has secured for us our redemption. The point here is you can't make you clean. You can't wash the guilt. There's all kinds of literary examples of this. In in, in Macbeth, there's the the spot that cannot be washed out. The scarlet letter. You're familiar with some of these stories. This sense in which it's like it can't be removed. And guess what? You can't remove it. But the promise of the gospel is that Jesus actually can remove it. Jesus actually can take all of your dirty clothes and give you his. It's why several times in the New Testament we hear language that says we are clothed in Christ or we are clothed in his righteousness. You see, what happened with Joshua before the throne of God was not that Joshua figured out how to wash his own clothes. He got different clothes. You know, sometimes we use the language of resume. You know, Joshua stood before God and his resume was no good. He needed a different resume. And Jesus swaps out his resume for ours. Jesus swaps out our dirty clothes for his clean clothes. In Christ, we are forever washed clean. This is the news of the gospel. And it's so much more simple than you think it is. You say, okay, I'm in for that. How how do you clean your clothes? You, You have to give up. You actually, in our second point, the more serious problem, do you recognize the problem? Do you see that you're dirty deeper than you know? Do you see that you don't just feel guilty, but you are guilty? That the Bible says that all have sinned and that everybody has fallen short. If that's true, it's bad, bad news. But boy, it makes the gospel such good news. That Jesus will wash your sins away that Jesus takes all our guilt away. If you've come to God through Christ, then God really has forgiven you. 
You know, one of the reasons why we have assurance of pardon in our services every single week is because we need to hear it again. We, we need to hear that our pardon, that our forgiveness is assured because of Jesus' work on our behalf. If you've come to God through Christ, then God really has forgiven you. He really, when he looks at you, he really does see you dressed in Jesus' clothes. It's not your clothes washed up. It's better than that. It's Jesus covering you. It's Jesus clothing you in his righteousness. Jesus really did take all the consequences of all of your actions. When God sees you, he sees you in Jesus' clothes. One of the other great word pictures, and I'll close with this, is when Jesus is baptized. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus enters the water. John the, Baptist, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus comes back up, a voice from heaven says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now look, if you're in Jesus, what God says about Jesus, he now says about you. You are my son or my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That you actually have the smile of God on you. That if you've come to God through Christ, he really does forgive you. Listen, if you are here today and you think, I have a, I have a spot that I can't get out. I have a scarlet letter that I can't get off. If, you, if shame is making you drown in your, in, your, in your guilt, I have great news for you in the gospel. Jesus really does wash you clean. Jesus really does give you eternally clean clothes. Because of Jesus, you actually can have the smile of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text and uh, complicated sections, but such a powerful message that all that effort in the Old Testament to try to get clean, all that symbolism that with all of that effort, it still wasn't enough. All of those sacrifices, all of those rituals. God, we thank you that there was one priest, an ultimate priest, the ultimate high priest, who came and once for all, when he did what he did, he sat down. The sacrifices are over. He's the sacrifice we need. He's the one who can actually take our guilt away. Thank you for this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.